Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week I'm talking with Nick Hornby, best-selling author turned Hollywood dinner party attendee. And I got my plate and I filled it with all this lovely food and I looked around and I thought, well, I can't go and sit down there because Meryl is talking to George and and I can't just plonk myself in the middle of them. But it was like somebody's living room and I recognised everybody in the room but I did want to sit down and, and put my meal on my lap and eat it. Uh, so in the end, I thought, well, I don't care um, if Adam Sandler doesn't want me sitting there. I'm going to go and sit there because he's got a whole sofa to himself and I need to eat my teeth. It's bullseye. Coming up, I'll sit down with Nick Hornby. His latest novel, Funny Girl, is about a kind of British Lucille Ball. You know, one of the things I've slightly run out of steam with is, is writing about men of a certain age now uh, because I can't figure out what their problems are anymore. <laughs> it's like, just whatever, just do it. You're, you're a white male. <laughs> What's your issue? We'll talk about creativity, ambition, and the Beatles because I guess you can take the boy out of high fidelity, but you can't take the high fidelity out of the boy. Later, the veteran character actor Luis Guzman remembers the movie role that changed everything for him. I go to a club in L.A., on Chicago, in Miami, or in Puerto Rico, wherever I was. And it was like, yo, that's Pachanga. Yo, what's up? Yo, why you do that to Carlito? You know, why why you double-cross Carlito? You know, and, and, and my response, it be that way, man. Plus, I'll tell you about a private eye who's not chasing booze and dames. He's just trying to buy into the American dream. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. So Nick Hornby became famous as a literary writer for men. His first three books were about guys, fans specifically. Fever Pitch was a memoir about Hornby's love of soccer. High Fidelity was about a record store owner struggling with love. About a boy was about a a sort of boyish man tending to a mannish boy. More recently, though, things have taken a turn. He wrote about young women in his screenplays for An Education and Brooklyn, both of which were Oscar-nominated. And his most recent novel, Funny Girl, is also about a young woman. In Funny Girl, Barbara Parker wins a beauty contest in her seaside hometown in England. But she hands the tiara to the runner-up. She wants to be funny, and she knows she has to leave home to do it. What follows is a hit sitcom in a time, the mid-1960s, when that really meant something. Hornby follows the thread of the show and its small creative team through its run and ultimately through their old age. I spoke with Nick Hornby last year. The book's now out in paperback. Nick Hornby, always great to have you on the show. Welcome back to Bullseye. So nice to be back here. Let's talk about your book. It occurs to me that the time period in which this book takes place uh, which is like starting, what, 1963, 64, something yeah. like that. Yeah. And most of the action takes place over the next four years or so. Um, is sort of the time period of the first young people who grew up only in the aftermath of World War II in England? Yes. Um, 
they were born in 1944 and 1945. Um, so they were born during the war, but they wouldn't have any memory of it. And they also didn't have to serve in the army um, because we had national service up until uh, like 1960 or something like that. I was thinking the other day that actually if John and Paul had been born a couple of years before, uh, then they probably would have had to do national service and the whole history of the world might have been different. It's something that you sort of allude to in the book, like this, just the difference between having that marker in your life and being a young person who gets to choose his or her own path is so huge. Yeah, I, I, the more I read about the period, the more I can't quite get my head around what my parents' generation went through, how much was blighted by war. Um, And it isn't just the fighting and the blitz, but um, the 10 years after World War II was so miserable in England. Um, There was food rationing until about two years before I was born. Um, And, you know, there's no fruit, no sweets, no no nothing. And, And it's just an amazingly different childhood that they had. Barbara, who is the protagonist of the novel and whose name eventually changes confusingly for radio programs to Sophie, uh, show business name, um, she has absolute certitude that she is leaving town uh, as soon as she is physically able to the point where, you know, you open the novel with her essentially winning a beauty contest and turning it down when she realizes that means she'd have to stick around to be there for mall openings or whatever yes. the 1964 yes. equivalent is. Hospital visits, yeah. Um, is that a feeling that you know yourself? Yes. Um, I grew up in a, a, a small town about 30 miles outside London and um, I knew that uh, I wouldn't be going back the moment I was allowed to leave. Um, I do think it's it's quite often the story of popular culture, actually, is um, most bands and lots of writers end up traveling to places from somewhere else. And, and, and the drive that they have that's taken them to the cities um, is, is the thing that makes it work for them. Um, you know, whether it's the Rolling Stones in Dartford, in Kent, um, uh, the Beatles in Liverpool, obviously, um, the band in Canada, um, Bob Dylan in Minnesota. Um, the, there aren't so many people who grew up in a city and then think, oh, great, I'm here, I might as well be in a band. It, it tends not to work like that. And and certainly not for middle-class people anyway. Yes, not for middle-class people. There, there's... Um, uh, it's the story of rock and roll rather than, say, R&B, yes. So uh, I had no idea about this, but your mom was Tom Stoppard's wife's secretary. <laughs> Am I getting that right? Yeah. And so you had in your life, like, you could see what it was to be a professional artist. It was the coolest thing, and I only, I've only started talking about this recently um, because I realized what a big deal it must have been for me. Um, yeah, my mum worked for a, a pharmaceutical company. She was a personal assistant, and the managing director was a woman called Miriam Stoppard, who, in fact, in England went on to have a kind of TV uh, agony doctor career. 
and she was married to Tom. Well, you're going to have to explain for Americans what agony doctor means. You don't have agony aunts? So an agony – that's like a uh, an advice column. Yes, right? and, and so she did advice columns but on medical issues and she gotcha. became quite famous on, on TV. Um, and, um, yeah, and she was married to Tom, Sir Tom now. And uh, when I was a kid, like 15, 16, the company used to have these Christmas dinner dances and I used to have to take my mum because my dad wasn't around. Uh, and Tom used to take Miriam, and I, I'd be hanging at the bar with with, with Tom Stoppard um, at the dinner dance for this pharmaceutical company. And I just used to ask him loads of things, like, well, what's this like? And um, uh, what happens when your play does this and this and this? And um, he was endlessly patient with me. Um, and we got invited to the house a few times, and we always got invited to um, the plays when the, when they opened, and I never understood a word of them, uh, <laughs> but it was so cool to be there. So it was this amazing thing that, that I had the opportunity to see that there was pretty good money, it seemed to me, in, write, in writing. Well, it's funny because, like, Barbara, in your book, the only idea she has of what it is to be uh especially a woman who's an artist is lucille ball yeah. just this thing this person who literally lives a continent away that she's only seen once a week on television and that's like a very different thing to have such faith or conviction or something that you are willing to fly so blindly as that well, I guess that's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is that there were plenty of men that she was looking at, and and she, you know, there were loads of male comedians that that she liked. So she knew the area in which she wanted to work, and and she and she knew technically what what comedy was from those guys. Um, but the only actual woman uh, was Lucy, and it's a weird thing about English comedy that we never had um, a comedian of similar stature so part of the point of the book was was to kind of uh, graft in this alternative fiction well i mean we barely had a comedian of similar stature until like the 70s i guess and carol burnett and mary tyler moore yes i suppose I mean, that's true <laughs> yes but, she was sort of a singular a singular phenomenon in a sexist world goldie horn in the what the 70s right well, Rowan and Martin's laughing, the Goldie right, Horn sure. was... Yeah, but there wasn't a lot. You're right. It's a sexist world. <laughs> it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the author and screenwriter Nick Hornby. He made his name with books like High Fidelity and About a Boy. His novel Funny Girl is about a British comic actress starring in a 60s sitcom. Is part of what's interesting to you about writing about women and especially young women, and especially young women in these times, the frisson that you get from the boundaries on their lives? Yes, um, I think that's absolutely right. Um, that, you know, one of the things I've slightly run out of steam with is, is writing about men of a certain age now uh, because I can't figure out what their problems are. <laughs> anymore it's like just whatever just do it you're a, you're a white male what, what, what's your issue um whereas 
um, a period woman um, has all kinds of obstacles to overcome. I mean, clearly, uh, Barbara in this book and Janine in ed- education, and I've, I've just adapted Colin Toybean's Brooklyn, which is about a young Irish girl in the 1950s. And, um, and it feels like, like Jane Austen, you know, where you understand that there were these rules and, and that you can't transgress, so you have to negotiate. And, I mean, obviously, Jane Austen still works for a lot of people. It's not like they go, oh, why doesn't she just take all her clothes off? <laughs> well, one of the things about this story is that it's a time when all of those rules are completely in flux. Well, uh, I think that might be a little bit of a misreading of how the 60s was. And One of the famous fashion photographers said, oh, Swinging London was 200 people, and I knew them all. And um, uh, certainly, you know, it, there were certain people who had a, an amazing time in the 60s, but um, I, I do think it was a very isolated pocket of, of privileged people. Um, and... Sophie's in show business anyway, and show business tends to be a little bit squarer than what was going on um, elsewhere. Really squarer than what's going on elsewhere? Show business. Not more libertine? No, no. She's gone straight into a sort of BBC tradition that, that goes back 20, 30 years, and there were still a lot of older people working there. And it wasn't like they, the moment they heard the Beatles, they chucked out all these programs and and freaked out it, 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 there were still really really square variety shows on tv with a, a, a sort of middle-aged soprano singing and um uh it, it, it took a while for the influence of the 60s to be felt in popular mainstream entertainment i think there are things from tv in the united states that i can watch now and uh uh, from the 1950s and early 1960s, I can watch now and and enjoy. I mean, maybe not as much as I enjoy watching Archer or whatever, but can still enjoy. You know, like I could watch Lucy and enjoy that. I could watch uh, certainly highlights from your show of shows and enjoy that. I could watch Dick Van Dyke and enjoy that. Um, I, I'm sure you must have you know, gone off to an archive and watched things from 1962 from the BBC yeah. and ITV. Did did you, were you able to enjoy them? Um, there are some terrible things. Um, <laughs> I mean, just like incredibly bad. Wait, there are terrible things on television? <laughs> Thank God on, we've gotten out of that. On YouTube, there are terrible things, yeah. Um, but... The good things, I think, yes, I can still watch them. When I say I can still watch them, technically they're so badly made you can hardly see them. Uh, um, the sort of darkness and the murk. Um, you have to kind of really peer through the gloom to see what's going on. Um, and American TV was always so crisply well, I think done. It seems like it only occurred to British television producers like 10 years ago that they can make a show that doesn't look horrible. Yes, yes, it's true. And that you, you can light it and things like yeah. that. Like, can we just shoot this in a basement with this camcorder and Dame Judy Dench? Yeah, you're right. I think 10 years is generous. I'd say it was like four years ago. <laughs> Do any of the things from those shows from 50 years ago seem funny to you? Yes. Um, there are... 
a couple of writers that I mentioned in, in the book, uh, the, this writing partnership called Galton and Simpson, they were geniuses um, and they still make me laugh and their radio shows for this comedian called Tony Hancock, I think, are brilliant. They, they were remade for television. They also wrote Steptoe and Son, which became Sanford and Son in America and um, they, they had like four or five hit shows but they were, they were like Pinter. Um, they were dark um, and weird and brilliantly observational. And um, I, th I think those shows are fantastic. One of the things that's interesting to me about the way that the timeline progresses is that when this show is conceived, the idea is that it's going to be a modern, quote-unquote, modern take on marriage. Um, it happens to be written by two gay guys. Yes. <laughs> one of one of whom is is in a marriage uh to a woman he loves, but it's a obviously it's tricky. <laughs> an unusual <laughs> marriage given yes. that he's gay. Um and and like what defines what is edgy has changed changes literally between the like the first and second series. Yes. Yes. of the show. Um well, one of the things that happens in the show is that um, this other show called Till Death Must Do Part, which in the US became All in the Family, is it? The Archie mm -hmm. Bunker one. Um, the UK one, Till Death Must Do Part, which had this character called Alf Garnet, he kind of just blew the roof off television. Um, the writer was a guy called Johnny Spate, and um, he had the, the bigger... Um, who loved the Queen and was always swearing. And um, uh, Archie Bunker was quite toned down compared to Alf Garnett. And, um, and so Barbara and Jim, which feels to the creators a little bit edgy because they've dealt with sex and, and, and class, and then they're looking at Till Death Us Depart and thinking, oh, my God, you know, how are we going to compete with this? You know, I mean, uh, Richard Linklater was on the show a few months ago talking about boyhood. And they filmed that movie over the course of like a dozen years. And seriously, I know, I'm just right? Kidding. I know, right? Isn't that amazing? Is here's a story you have. How do you stop the kid from growing up? Well, <laughs> Richard Linklater was talking about the thing that surprised him most about watching the passage of time over the course of that twelve years was how similar he felt two thousand two was to. 2014 and I don't know what it's like to live in a world where things change as much as they did between 1963 and 1968 I, I still can't really understand it what, what it I mean I, I lived through that time um, but I was a kid I, I went from 6 to 10 or whatever um, and you look at it now and think you know, it's four years, four years, the difference between, I don't know, Peter, Paul and Mary singing Blowing in the Wind and Jimi Hendrix playing Purple Haze. You think, well, it must have been so strange just to turn on the radio pretty much every single day. You think, where did this come from? Where did this come from? And and the Beatles, with the Beatles to the to the White Album. What's that? Five years. It's like 2010 to 2015. Nothing happened at all apart from I, it was iPhone 4 probably, was it? I guess it won't ever happen again, but I really, really hope it does. 
after a break, I'll finish my conversation with Nick Hornby. We'll talk about dealing with creative success and how writing for Hollywood has changed the way he writes his novels. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Sony Pictures Classics, presenting the new film Miles Ahead, directed by and starring Don Cheadle as Miles Davis in a no-holds-barred portrait of the musical genius. Now playing in select theaters everywhere April 22nd. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Try out the NPR One app for your phone. Every Thursday this month, you can hear episodes of Pop Culture Happy Hour a day early, exclusively in NPR One. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour, stories from your local station, and more great podcasts on the NPR One app. It's on your app store now. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the author and screenwriter Nick Hornby. He made his name with books like High Fidelity and About a Boy. His novel Funny Girl is about a British comic actress starring in a 60s sitcom. I have to say, when I got to the end of the 1960s narrative and it made a turn to the present day and there was, you know, 10 or 15% of the book left, I thought, oh, come on, Nick Hornby, this is dumb. Give me a break. (laughs) Now we're going to do a where are they now? Yeah. (laughs) And I was kind of surprised that I'm – maybe found it to be the most touching part of the book and the and the part of the book that connected the most deeply with me which is i mean i'm not an old person um you don't look like an old person but thank you that's very kind of you nick um but i i wonder if that was always part of your conception of this story yes um right from the beginning i knew that there would be a coda to this novel where people who'd been very successful when they were young were much older looking back on their life. And in fact, that was one of the reasons that made me set it in the 60s, just because of the maths, that I wanted them to be in their mid-70s now. You think, okay, take away 50, all right, we're back to 1964. Um, But I think it means that, uh, for me, all the way through when I was writing, uh, that it felt more poignant thinking about... Um, being at the peak of your career in 25 and thinking that the world is always going to stay the same when you know that um, you're going to end the book with everything being seen through the prism of old age. You are, uh, the audience doesn't may or may not know this, but you are in middle age at the moment. Yes, thank you. That's Possibly that's kind. Um, and I wonder if you think about how you will think about your career if if things went quiet. Um, you know, I don't think your life would fall apart uh, the way that uh, the one of the writer's bills does to some extent. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if, if you're 75 and you've most of the things that you've made are 15 years ago, um, how do you how do you think you'll think about your creative career? Well, first of all, um, if no one's made anything for 15 years, I hope to God I've stopped trying. Um, I don't want to be the person moaning on about how you're not being given a chance because you're old. Uh, Do you have characters in the book who are that, a husband and wife comedy team who enter for a (laughs) few scenes who were famous in music halls or whatever? Yeah. 
and are unknown to anyone involved in the production. They're just some old people they cast to play some old people roles. Yes, and they're very upset about it. And um, I, I, that is a fate I wish to avoid. I think some people would think of that as admirable to kind of go down fighting. <laughs> well, it, it, they don't look very cheerful about it, those those <laughs> particular people. And I, I think it's fine to go down fighting as long as uh, you don't think there's a conspiracy against you. And you come across that, I think, all the time, not just with old people, but, you know, it's like, oh, I can't get a break in this writing game because it's all an old pals act. And, and you think, no, it really isn't an old pals act. Um the reason you can't get a break is because so far nobody's liked the writing that you've done, um, and that's why you can't get an agent. It's not about who you know at all. But people spin these conspiracy theories all the time, and I really want not to be spinning those theories when I'm old, old, old. I mean, when you look at this relationship between the two stars of the show, um, Sophie and Sophie slash Barbara and Clive, yeah. As they look back on their career in their mid-70s, as they're putting together a retrospective of the show, yes, some of their goals are very similar. They both like the idea of spending a little time with one of the highlights of their life and their career. Yeah. Um, but Sophie seems much more comfortable with her significant but not monstrous success in her career, that she was able to be somewhat successful. Somewhat successful. Um, and, and and clearly loved, I think, as well. Um, but now I, I, I think that her route through it all is entirely admirable, actually, and, and it, it's the, the thing that we all have to aspire towards. I think especially difficult for her as a woman and as a female actress where so much of her you know career value was tied up in her looks in the way that she looked yeah um but she has clearly found a role for herself as a character actress there's a, a list of all the um tv programs that that she's been in and, and that was the point where i was like oh god is this, this where hornby's going with this <laughs> It took me so long to think of the names of those shows. <laughs> I thought about that as I was reading it. It nearly killed me. Just trying to make up the names of 70s. Like, how can you, what is the fictional equivalent of keeping up appearances? <laughs> yes. All creatures great and small. Yeah, and there's about 45 of them in that, on those two pages as well. But that she is able to feel comfortable with medium-sized success. Medium-sized success, having had large success. And um, when you look around, you can see rock stars and movie actors who who do seem to handle it all with enormous aplomb and dignity. I'm not naming names. <laughs> You're not going to positively name names? <laughs> well... <laughs> I think Paul McCartney's done pretty well, actually. I mean, he's it probably helps that he's still enormously successful. But having been a Beatle, it, he didn't kind of go crazy. He he thought, okay, I've been a Beatle, now I'm going to be in a band that might not be as good, but I'm going to keep playing and keep making records. 
Um, and culture is littered with people who are freaked out by their own success. And Harper Lee, for example. Your first few books, one of the most interesting things about them was that they were about, in part, the experience of fandom, of being an appreciator. Yes. And this book is very much about the process of creating. Um, You know, it's about Barbara and Bill and Tony, the writers, and the producer and co-star creating this thing. And I wonder if you feel more comfortable seeing yourself as a creator now? You're a very shrewd observer. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, that um, I, I think that uh, that's probably exactly what's happened, that um, I couldn't have imagined writing from any other perspective other than that of a fan when I started writing in the 1990s. And um, uh, this book, I guess maybe the last novel, Juliet Naked, as well, um, um I, I i they are about artists and, and creating art and yes finally i feel um that i have something to say on the, on those subjects why do you think you w- didn't feel comfortable speaking about those things before i didn't know i uh was creating anything all i was doing was writing about other people creating something it didn't occur to me that in the act of observing those things I was in fact creating my own art um, it, it, it just didn't cross my mind It's Bullseye I'm Jesse Thorne I'm talking to the author and screenwriter Nick Hornby One of the things that was most impressive to me about Barbara slash Sophie the main character of your new book Funny Girl was the kind of almost heedlessness with which she pursues creating, like this kind of headlong dive. Why did you choose to have her pursue creating in that way? Um, well, with no regard for anybody else, do you mean? or Just with no... I mean, honestly, like when I sit down to try and make something, which I do periodically, mostly I think about the reasons why it's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> And all the things that are wrong with whatever I've already got down on the piece of paper or equivalent, right? And she has bound and determined that she will dive into the pool and swim. I I wonder if there's something specifically about actors because they can't do it themselves, um, that you have to wait on somebody else, somebody else's writing, somebody else's direction, somebody else's money, whereas the stuff that we do... um, just to begin it, you don't need any permission. Uh, and um, and so, yes, I agree with you. I'm constantly introducing caveats and doubts and um, uh, things don't get done as a result. But actually, in the end, things do get done. And I, I, I seem to be in a vein at the moment where I'm working hard and quickly. Uh, but it's it is easier when you're generating it yourself, and 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 Sophie has this yearning 
you know, to be funny, but she needs to be funny with somebody else's script and somebody else's program. And and I think that does mean that if you see a glimmer of a chance, then you've just got to jump. The actors in this book, both uh, Clive, the male lead of the show, and Sophie slash Barbara, the female lead, are um, absolutely desperate for recognition. And it's not necessarily presented in the way that it's usually presented, in which it is exclusively seen as vanity or as a negative thing. Yeah. Like typically when we say somebody wants recognition, it's just, oh, they're vain. That's a that's a sin. And it is in part in the book, but it's also feels like you're very sympathetic towards that. <laughs> what do you respect about somebody who is talented, but part of what drives them is wanting to be applauded for their talent? Well, I, I think this is quite an interesting area, but um, it seems to me that anyone who does anything creative, um, th- that it is a childish impulse. Um, because at, at the bottom of it, you're saying, please look at me, I have something to say that nobody else has to say. I mean, that's that's how books come into being, and that's how bands come into being. Um and I think when when we're bringing up our children, what we want to do is maybe get them to a position where they realise that they're not the centre of the universe, uh, and that is good parenting. Uh, if we if we get our kids to the age of eighteen and they realise that they're not the centre of the universe, we've kind of done our jobs. Um, the trouble with artists is that they never ever learn that. But they are taught that they are the center of the universe, not just because of being famous, but um, being appreciated or, or being written about, or, or all of these kinds of things. It's it's some, there's something fundamentally unhealthy about it, I think. But I'm sympathetic because clearly it's in me. One of the things that I think about sometimes is that making any kind of creative anything is uh, in part like an an attempt at communication. And you'd be crazy if you were communicating only to yourself. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like there's this part of wanting to say something is wanting to have someone hear it. Yes, but why does it have to be somebody you don't know? Who's interviewing who again? (laughs) I don't know. Answer me that, Nick. Why does it have to be somebody you don't know? Uh, well, that's where the unhealthy part comes in, I think. Do you uh, feel that way? Is that unhealthy part of you? Yes. It, it's unhealthy that I am, I am unduly thrilled that I'm sitting in a radio station a long, long, long way from home because an American person presumes that other American people will want to hear what I have to say. Was it cool when you got nominated for an Oscar and for a relatively small film and uh, got to do a bunch of uh, Hollywood show business type things. Yes, it was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I mention it only because the that year uh, that you were nominated for an Oscar, 
I was at a hotel here in Los Angeles uh, where I had watched the Oscars on television with a friend. And uh, we were in the lobby of the hotel, and Carrie Mulligan, the star of the film for which you were nominated for an Oscar, uh, walked in in her, like, Oscars outfit. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, wow. Okay, now I know what glamorousness is. <laughs> I was just like, oh, whoa. This is three levels above anything yeah. I am familiar with at <laughs> all. Was there was there any like was there any particular moment that stands out that was like uh oh this is a whole other world from um uh, memoirs about soccer. Yes, there were several of those. I would say the most memorable was a buffet supper at Amy Pascal's house um for all the Sony nominees and and I got my plate <laughs> And I filled it with all this lovely food. And I looked around. There's like 35 people at this party. And um, and I thought, well, I can't go and sit down there because Meryl is talking to George. And, um, <laughs> and I can't just plonk myself in the middle of them. But it was, it was like somebody's living room. And I recognized everybody in the room. But I did want to sit down and, and put my meal on my lap and eat it. <laughs> Uh, so in the end, I thought, well, I don't care um, if Adam Sandler doesn't want me sitting there. I'm going to go and sit there because he's got a whole sofa to himself and I need to eat my tea. So I just sat down and he wasn't really talking to anyone. And, um, and he, he turned around and he said, hey, how are you doing? And it was all cool and fine and we started talking. You know that we just we just wrote uh, like tabloid headlines around the country. No one wants to sit on couch with Adam Sandler. <laughs> Mrs. Sandler was there. Oh, very good. I should point that out before he sues me. <laughs> um, can you tell me uh, what you've gotten for your uh, literary work from your experience um, in doing show business work. You've written as well for television. Mm -hmm. um, you've written several screenplays. And you had written, you wrote the screenplay version of Fever Pitch yes, for did, the yeah. English film. Yeah. Um, but more recently, it's been a big part of your life. Yeah. How did that change the way that you wrote a novel? Well, one of the things that um, changed is that I'd been out of novel writing for so long that... Um, a, I found it harder to begin with, going back to Funny Girl. Um, I couldn't remember how to write, you know, like the linking stuff that they call prose, I believe, in <laughs> in literary circles. Um, and secondly, I, it was thrilling not to have to ask anyone's permission to do anything. Um, I, I love the collaborative side of screenplays, but there are so many gatekeepers and... Um, you you have to jump over so many hurdles and jump through so many hoops. And and a screenplay is not a thing. Um, you can't give it to someone and say, here's my screenplay, read it. Um, well, you, you can, but people are mystified by it as a rule. Whereas if you finish a novel, it doesn't matter if nobody publishes it. It's a novel. You've done it. You've done the work. And, um, and I, I suddenly remembered all the great things about novel writing um, uh, in terms of the liberty... It gives you, but um, technically, I think um, when you're used to working in that confined space of a screenplay, because it's like a hundred pages with not very much writing on it, um, I think that 
A, you learn to be much more concise uh, when you're writing fiction. I think possibly there's a danger of being too concise as well. You, you, you look at it, you think, oh, I'm allowed to write at length here because it is a novel. Um, and um, really, there comes a point when the object of novel writing is to keep one end away from the other, not to just cut it all out because then you're more economical. You, you, you have got to get, provide people with something to read. Do you think when you are an old guy, like the old characters at the end of your book, you will be a happy old guy? I think I've got a shot at it, yeah. <laughs> Depends I'm, I'm, on how, how the gout works out. I'm not super confident because I can be a grumpy middle-aged guy and I was a grumpy young man. So, uh, But I, I think I'm getting there slowly. Well, Nick, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. Always great to talk to you. Thanks very much, Jesse. Nick Hornby's really funny, charming book is called Funny Girl. It just came out in paperback. He's also the screenwriter behind the Oscar-nominated film Brooklyn, which is now available on Blu-ray and VOD. After a break, actor Luis Guzman tells us why fans of his work sometimes stop him on the street and threaten him with violence. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. A quick shout-out to one of our sponsors who brings you this message, Target. If you haven't yet, you have to check out Made to Matter, handpicked by Target. Mrs. Meyer's Clean Day has a line of natural cleaners made with plant-derived ingredients and essential oils, and Toms of Maine created the most advanced natural whitening toothpaste that's also safe on enamel and gluten and paraben-free. Check them out and the rest of the Better For You products Made to Matter has to offer at Target.com slash Made to Matter. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. For music, games, puzzles, and trivia of all sorts right now, check out Ask Me Another. Play a game of snack or whack? Unravel the similarities between Pride and Prejudice and Fifty Shades of Grey and see what you and comedian Wyatt Cenac know about puppets. Ask Me Another is like trivia night but a lot funnier. Play along now at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're an actor, you know this. Getting cast in your first role is a huge challenge. But even then, it's sometimes years before actors land a role that really gets their career moving. That's the part. Luis Guzman is a bad guy. On TV and in movies, usually, anyway. He's been a go-to character actor for directors like Steven Soderbergh and Paul Thomas Anderson. He's popped up in lots of movies playing gangsters and thugs. We finally saw a bit more of him as one of the stars of the CBS medical drama Code Black. In the early 90s, Luis had acted in the occasional movie and episode of Miami Vice, but that wasn't his only job. It was very, very early in my career. Um... I was still a social worker on the Lower East Side, community activist. His acting career hadn't quite come together all the way. That changed with an audition for the role of a thuggy sidekick named Pachanga. I got a phone call and said, they're doing this movie and it's called Calito's Way and they want you to come in to read for the part of a character named Pachanga will be kind of Al Pacino's right-hand guy. And I'm like, oh, wow. Oh, really? Oh, okay, cool. The night before my audition, my brother-in-law, Tippy, 
came over with um, his cousin Eric. And they happened to have been in Tompkins Square Park. So they came up to my apartment, you know, and uh, they had found this old leather jacket that somebody left on the bench. So I looked at it and said, oh, well, that's cool. And kind of light bulb went off in my head. said, oh, man, that old beat-up leather jacket that you found has so much character. I'm going to wear it to the audition because that looked like a badass gangster kind of jacket, you know, like it's been through wars, you know. So I wore it. I went to the audition the next day. I start reading for the Royal Pachanga, and uh, two lines in, Brian De Palma starts cracking up, and I'm like, oh, boy, okay, ooh, 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 he's laughing at me, okay. And I kept reading it, and I got through the audition. I thanked everybody. And as I'm walking out, Bonnie Timmerman gives me the thumbs up. I got home like, I don't know, half hour, 45 minutes later, in the days of answering machines. And uh, there's a message, and it was, the message is, you got the part. And it was like, oh, man, this is huge. Uh, Calito's Way was about this guy, Calito Brigante, Puerto Rican guy, you know, from El Barrio, New York City, who gets out of jail, is trying to do the right thing and go straight, you know. And uh, he buys into a club. And um, I played his right-hand man, you know. It's like I, I knew Calito before he went into jail, and I ran into him, like, the day he got out of jail. Calito, man, Death Valley out here, man. You know, you know me. I take to the street with any of these <laughs> man. But these new kids nowadays, man, they got no respect for human life. They shotgun you, man, just to see you fly up in the air, man. Chacha, you better off in jail. You know, like, I don't even go up to Black Harbor no more, man. The crazy up there. Remember Victor? Victor with the beard. Victor yeah. got shotgun to death right in front of the high, man, right in front of Patrick Henry High. He Laling, you know Laling. You leave me that, sir. What happened to him? Laling doing 30 years in Attica, man. 30 years. You grew up on the Lower East Side in the 70s and early 80s, you see a lot. You know, you see the hustlers out there, you know, you see the guys that are trying to make it. You see the guys that are kind of devious and stuff like that. And that was Pachanga, you know. I mean, he's the guy that says, I got your back, I got your back. But, you know, you make one misstep and he'll stab you in the back. And loyalty goes but so far. It was interesting because I think when I first started working on the movie, I did feel a little insecure. Because it's like, dude, you're working with Tony Montana. You're working with that dude that did Serpico, Do Day Afternoon, you know. It was a little intimidating, you know, I'm not going to lie. And I called up one of my friends and I said, yeah, I'm just going through this. And my friend gave me the best advice in the world. And that is, Lou, you're growing up in this stuff. You know, this is not new to you. You know, you're in the driver's seat. And I just totally forgot about my insecurities. And I just took the dive and I go, come on, man, let's go. Let's play. I think the scene for me... Pretty much is when Vigo Mortensen is in the office with, with Carlito and uh, Vigo's in a wheelchair. And uh, what ends up happening is Carlito ends up frisking him and finding a wire. So he was Vigo's part, you know, Laling, 
was working with the authorities trying to set up Galito. And I come into the office and I see that. That was an incredible moment for me because you got to understand, I'm outside and I'm listening to the scene. And I'm actually feeling for this guy in the wheelchair. But then I got to come in through that door and said, you a rat? You want me to shoot him? I shoot him right now, Carlito. You know, and, uh, you know, talk about being in the moment. That was it right there for me. <laughs> Look at this. Wait, wait. This is how you beat your 30 years, no. huh? Piece of Let me explain. I'll kill you, you I'll push you in the river. What the is going on, Galito? No, no, wait a minute. Wait a second. Wait a second. Let me kill him, man. Let me kill him, man. Let me kill him, man. Let him kill me. Kill me. Look what I got. Look what I got. I mean, look at me. You got everything, man. I mean, come on. When the movie came out and people saw it, it was like, you know, People still didn't know my name. People didn't know that I was Luis Guzman, but people knew that I was Pachanga. Because for a lot of people, they see these characters in their real life. And here you are, and me being from the Lower East Side and walking around the neighborhood and stuff like that, it's like, yo, Pachanga, what's up? You know, and, and like I said, it, it was a really good feeling because, you know, people acknowledged that I did a great role. Some people, like would, like, literally want to come up to me and fight. He said, yo, man, you don't do that to your boy, man. I said, my man, back up a second. It was it was not real. I was just making a movie, and there was a script, you know. But um, Pachanga, for me, was a game changer. You know, it was a game changer because, like, like, like I said, you know, it became this, like, cult film. What I took away from Carlito's way was, like, wow, I can do this. You know, I can, I can, I can say, finally that confidence in myself was growing, that I can hear someone call action, and here I am doing the scene with Al Pacino and Viggo Mortensen, and I can be just as real as they can be, you know, and I could give it back to them just as they give it to me. Because you got to understand, that was like very early on in my career, and it's like playing in baseball in Poughkeepsie, New York, and all of a sudden you get a phone call and say, dude, in four hours, you play in center field in Yankee Stadium. And it's like, wow. And you know what? You play that game, and you play it well in Yankee Stadium, and you stick, and you're in the major leagues. I just proved to myself that I can play with anybody. For Luis Guzman, Pachanga, in the 1993 movie Carlito's Way, was the part. Why? It beats that way. You can see Luis Guzman on the CBS television show Code Black. There he plays the role of the L.A. emergency room senior nurse, affectionately called Mama. Every week we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's the outshot. What motivates a private detective? Like a... Light through the window slats, fedora and trench coat, pour a glass of bourbon, neat, type private detective. He's outside the system, usually because he's a loose cannon. He fights corruption, cuts through red tape, gets stuff done. Usually there's a dame, too, some woman who isn't telling him everything, showing him just enough to get him hooked. 
That's usually when it is. But for Easy Rollins, it's about something simpler. It's about a mortgage. Rollins is the center of Walter Mosley's Devil in a Blue Dress, along with a pile of other books. He's also at the center of the movie Devil in a Blue Dress, which Carl Franklin made with Denzel Washington in the lead role. Easy's back from the Second World War, and he just got fired. I need to pay my mortgage and eat. I need a house to live in. I need to put clothes on my back, Mr. Giacomo. I need the job. I'm sorry, fella. I gotta get back to work. My name's not Fella. Huh? My name's not Fella. My name is Ezekiel Rollins. It's a point of inflection in America between the war and the civil rights movement, and Easy Rollins is on the sharp edge. When he gets swept up into the private investigations business, he's not fighting his way back from a drinking problem that got him kicked off the force. He's fighting to have his own life on his own terms, to be a full American. Property owner, huh? These big companies don't give a damn, do they easy? Got out of that racket a long time ago. Look, if you do need a job, you drop by this address, 7 o'clock tonight. What kind of work you do? I do favors. I do favors for friends. Drop by. It might seem like a simple thing to own a house. But it's the American dream, isn't it? A white picket fence, a place to call your own. And for most of us, a house is the physical manifestation of our wealth. It's how we get the ante we need to play the game of capitalism. And for a black man at the end of the 1940s, for decades thereafter, it was the last thing that could be assumed. In a lot of ways, Devil in a Blue Dress is a simple genre piece. There are a few beautiful women, some gunfights, a knife fight, political intrigue that goes all the way to the top. Easy has a friend, a shooter, played so brilliantly by a not-yet-famous Don Cheadle that if you didn't know who he was going in, you'd stay for the credits so you could write down his name. But the genre's a vehicle for a little more here, too. In noir, the world is always a mess. Power corrupts, the little man has to fight for scraps. He's flying blind, not always sure what's right and what's wrong. That's how it is in Devil in a Blue Dress, too. So, want the job? It depends on what kind of job it is. I don't want to get mixed up in that. Hmm, walk out the door in the morning easy. You're mixed up in something. Only thing that matters is if you're mixed up to the top or not. Nothing comes easy for Easy Rollins. Because he's a black man in a world set up to keep him down. Not just bad people, you know, racists, but structures. A society designed with intent to prevent him from fulfilling his humanity. And when he gets mixed up in all that, he's resolute. He will have his place in the world. And through all the fear and the shooting and the walking into darkness of unknown morality, hands extended trying to feel his way, he is resolute. He will have his place in the world. Find a job yet? I ain't studying no job, Odell. You studying no job? How you gonna live? I got a little money saved up. I'm investing in some real estate. Maybe going to business for myself. What kind of business? A little private investigating. You get in trouble doing that. 
Yeah, well, like a man told me once, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. Just a matter of whether you mixed up at the top of that trouble or not, that's all. And when all the smoke clears in Devil in a Blue Dress, Easy's done it. He has a home, he has a game of dominoes with his old friend Odell. It's like the song says, Easy Rollins isn't selling out, he's buying in. We got to talking about Texas and fooled around and drunk almost a quart of whiskey. And I forgot all about Daphne Monet, Dewitt Albright, Carter and them. And I sat with my friend on my porch at my house. And we laughed a long time. That's my outshot. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Abadian X. Borello. Our production assistant is Christian Duenas. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. If you'd like to hear any of our past programs, they are all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister show, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture. You can find it wherever you download podcasts. Just search for Pop Rocket. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR. 